Hi, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Jose Sanchez. I will be your host for today of the Criminology Academy, where we're community academic. Unfortunately, my co-host, Jen Toesleep, won't be joining us today, as she had to be called away to tend to some matters. But in this episode, we'll be speaking to doctoral candidate and the American Society of Criminology's 2020 Gene Cart Student Paper Competition second place winner, Juwan Bennett, about his winning paper on the impacts of perceived legitimacy and perceived opportunities on delinquency. Juwan Z. Bennett is a PhD candidate in the Department of Criminal Justice at Temple University. He is originally from the Philadelphia area and received his bachelor's in criminal justice from Temple University, graduating magna cum laude in 2013. During his undergraduate studies, he was a Ronald E. McNair research scholar and worked with education professor Dr. James Earl Davis, examining how alternative education programs can be successful at preventing delinquency. Juwan's research interests include the relationship between education and crime delinquency, developmental and life course criminology, and juvenile life without parole. Juwan is also the co-founder of the Temple University Urban Youth Leadership Academy, a program designed to equip the next generation of leaders, and is a recipient of multiple prestigious awards, including the ASC Gene Card Student Paper Award and the Bill and Melinda Gates Inter-University Consortium for Political and Research and Social Research Diversity Scholarship, the Ford Pre-Doctoral Fellowship Honorable Mention List, the Temple University Diamond Award, and the Temple University Faculty Award. A fun fact about Juwan is that he is an accomplished musician and performed live for President Obama. Welcome, Juwan. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah. You're quite the accomplished scholar. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me. And I just feel like now, I didn't feel any pressure, but after that great introduction, <laughs> I feel like I have to live up to that introduction. So maybe hopefully I'll say something important that people can take away from my conversation today. Oh, I'm sure you will. I mean, <laughs> and I don't know that I put us up there with performing in front of Barack Obama. Oh, that was I, in my <laughs> old days. <laughs> I went to a music high school. And so uh, part of my high school, you Barack Obama came to the Pennsylvania Convention Center and we got to sing and I was a part of a little jazz group and we had to, you know, play a little dinner afterwards. And so that was like my probably five seconds of fame, my Barack Obama story. <laughs> That's a lot more than I can say. <laughs> <laughs> so for today's episode, so we're going to talk about legitimacy and compliance. We're going to talk about your award-winning paper for ASC. And then we're going to talk, we want to talk a little bit about your involvement with the Step Up or Inside Out program. Yeah. So with that being said, let us move into sort of this more general discussion about legitimacy and compliance. And so we've discussed legitimacy a couple of times now on two different episodes, actually. So episode four with Lee Slocum and Russ Rangifo and episode 16, which will come out soon with Ajima Olagere. But the legitimacy in the context of your work, we'll be discussing it, is based more on Tom Tyler's work on legitimacy, which can be thought of as the belief that authorities and systems are proper and just. In other words, legitimate authorities and institutions are those who have 
officially sanction structural power and exercise their power fairly and can justify their actions to those that are being affected by their decisions, right? Does that sound like a fair sort of definition of, of Tyler's work? Yeah, I mean, legitimacy is this, this concept that Tyler really writes about. And it's just really just this, this belief, right, that individuals believe that authorities, and I think the key word for my paper, not only authority, but systems, that they're proper and they're just, and that people will have a fair interaction with you no know, law enforcement and systems, whether it be transparency, mutually respect, and just an overall kind of a gainful respect in the process. So yeah, I would definitely say that's a kind of just of what Tyler talks about in his work, his seminal work. Great. And so how do people develop their perceptions surrounding legitimacy of the police and institutions? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So people develop their legitimacy and interactions in, in a lot of different ways, primarily two ways, direct experiences, whether they've been a direct experience with the police officer or a judicial system, or maybe some contact with corrections, or they can be indirect as well. And they can get those experiences, what they call vicarious experiences, meaning that they can experience perceptions of legitimacy through others' accounts, whether that's whether it be witness like on TV with the recent killings of like unarmed black men and that we're watching the George Floyd trial now also can occur through legal socialization. So things that have been passed on from like parents and friends as well. So people develop their legitimacy perceptions either directly through some type of experience or doing a vicarious experience through others' experiences with legal authorities. And does one of those matter more than the other? Or I guess a better word to ask is, is a vicarious experience just as impactful as a direct experience? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research now, and I think it depends on the person and the context, but those vicarious experiences are, can be just as impactful to the person. And I would go to contend a a further step further. Carla Shedd, she writes in her book that sometimes people develop legitimacy perceptions without even, even having any contact with a criminal justice entity. She details a lot of her work and I talk about a little bit in the paper about how people come in contact with systems, sometimes even like educational systems, who become almost like criminal justice-like in their policies and their actions and their doings. And so people can develop perceptions about legitimacy in the law from not even have any interactions with the criminal justice system. So I think that's particularly so. So it's often noted in theory and research that strong perceptions of legal authorities, institutions, and the law positively influences compliance or obedience with the law. Can you elaborate on how legitimacy leads to or um, can influence compliance with the law? Yeah, I mean, Tyler has so much work around this, some of those work, but really the concept is, you know, by nature, human beings were followers. <laughs> I mean, what he kind of documents is what's really interesting is that when people feel as though they have the respect and they have transparency and they're treated fairly, that they are more likely to comply with the law, even in such when they don't even get the outcome that they wanted. So for example, even if they're found guilty, or even it's an unfavorable outcome to them, the mere fact that the process was fair, transparent, and, and they were treated with respect and dignity, that's enough for them to comply with the law and see legal authorities as just. And, you know, I'm not super familiar with Tyler's work, but I believe he mentions sort of two different 
perspectives, instrumental and normative. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit more about those two? Yeah, his work is really interesting. So Tyler in 1990 talks about these are two different distinct perspectives on why people choose to follow the law, which I think is really interesting. And he talks about this first perspective, which is it's called the instrumental perspective on why people obey the law. And it kind of shares similarities if people are familiar with the deterrence literature. And these approaches kind of really contend that legitimacy is achieved by how effective law enforcement officials are at addressing crime and social disorder in in communities. And the other kind of side to the same point is this idea of a normative perspective. And these normative perspectives on why people obey the law are more concerned with the influence of what people regard as just and moral. So it's not about the actions of law enforcement and trying to solve crime, but what people kind of influences with just and moral. And these approaches, when individuals perceive legal authorities as objective and ethical, they're more likely to comply with the law. Now, and this is like the really interesting caveat really here of the two types of legitimacy and the reason why. So in the paper, I I talk more about normative legitimacy of the two types of legitimacy. It's not so much of what police officers do to solve crime and disorder in neighborhoods, but normative legitimacy has been shown to be critical, extremely critical for gaining citizens' compliance. I mean, citizens' acceptance of police policies, judgments, or actions. So... Okay, so it sounds like the normative perspective seems to matter a little more, uh, at least mm-hmm. to people in the, within the community than the instrumental yeah. mm-hmm. perspective. Okay, so while legitimacy has been linked theoretically and also in some research to compliance with the law, a review by Charlotte Gill and her colleagues found that if efforts to build trust and increase legitimacy have not actually been effective for crime control, and this is something that you touch upon in your paper. Are there any indications on why this is happening or, or why if we're not seeing effectiveness in crime control with increasing legitimacy? Yeah, I think that's particularly relatively interesting. You would think that as police kind of solve crime and neighborhoods that, that would trust, but this is idea of this fair process. And I think there's a lot of things here at play. I think it goes to what we talked about earlier about people's direct experiences and vicarious experiences with understanding how fair systems are. But I also harken back on Shed work. She has a piece in South as well, where she highlights that as it relates to police legitimacy, most individuals are going to develop legitimacy perceptions, what they perceive about authorities without physically ever having any contact with the criminal justice system. And so the reason why we may conspectly as to why probably better policing efforts are not reducing crime control because we also have to take it into a myriad of other factors, particularly in one's environment, as to how people are gaining these legitimacy perspectives. So police can be very effective at their job, but if people are not believing in the system as, you know, as those actors are legitimate, that's not going to be compliance with crime. And one thing she talks about is an example of zero tolerance policies in schools and how these policies, you know, for really trivial offenses kind of operate criminal justice-like. And so people begin to have perceptions of the system as if it was a criminal justice entity. And that has really devastating consequences. And Victor Rios details this his book and a lot about, a lot, he talks about the youth control complex, where youth are really having these kind of interactions in school and family and recreation centers. So it seems like they never can kind of escape the kind of omnipresence of the hand of the criminal justice system. Right. And 
And how important would you say, okay, so I guess let me give a little context. So back in, <laughs> in my undergrad, I had to take a class on policing. And one of the projects that we had to do was, we kind of can't remember how many people it was. I think it was like five people, four sort of normal people, quote unquote, and then one person that was involved in the criminal justice system somehow, either like a police officer, a professor, something along those lines and talk to them about their experiences with the police. And something that kept coming up that I thought was interesting was you could have people sort of have good experiences with the police, but just one not so good experience would sort of completely throw all those other good experiences out the window. And then that not good experience, whether it was just mildly awkward to they thought they were extremely unfair, but that seemed to then become sort of their perception of the police. And so I never thought about it too much because, you know, it was just a class of like 15 people. But do you know if that sort of is sort of backed up by the research where like that, like one experience can really sort of change someone's perspective on the police? Yes. You know, I think first as scholars, we cannot underestimate the effects of the ex- extreme trauma that people feel with legal actors such as the police or just with the criminal justice system, it, it really has significant trauma and people, those experienced people never forget, you know, forget those, you know, so, and this is that kind of old adage, like people never forget the way you kind of make them feel. Right. And the issue is when people feel like police, and we'll talk about this more in the findings in my paper, when they feel like the police don't treat them fair, there are other systems as well, <laughs> you know, that, that people will begin to think are not fair. So basically what happens when people kind of experience even one or even multiple negative interactions with the criminal justice system, we know from Sarah Brain's work, they're less likely to interact with other systems like the financial, labor market systems, educational systems, which we know we could, which can improve like life outcomes and legitimacy. But if it puts them in any possible contact with to increase efforts with the police, things get interesting. So what I argue in the paper and, and what the research shows is that we can't take for granted that police and citizens do not kind of interact independently of each other, but rather within a larger social structure, where are there disparities in how people kind of view different opportunities that are, are available to them. So yeah, one kind of negative experience could really kind of have a domino effect for other life effectors. And, and when we see it now more you know, I know you probably as a criminal a criminal justice major undergrad, I was too, like, you look at background checks for our jobs. You know, Alice Goffman, you know, wrote a book talk about how, like, people on probation and parole may not be able to, like, go to the hospital as far as, like, financial documents, having, like, produce your name if you're on some, you know, you can't get a passport, you know? So, like, these right. things can really kind of, you know, affect your everyday life. Sort of on that topic, some, so getting back to what you were saying that, you know, all of this doesn't really happen in a vacuum. So some research has suggested that legitimacy, that there may be differential effectiveness of legitimacy depending on, on one's racial or ethnic group. And this is, you know, a really big and broad question, but how does race play into the building of trust and legitimacy, as well as the issue of the association between legitimacy and crime control that we just talked about? Yeah, you know, race is a really interesting dynamic. It's another kind of monkey wrench to kind of throw in the whole legitimacy, crime control, opportunities debate. I mean, what we know from Hershey's research is that 
And what he emphasizes that the legitimacy of the criminal justice system becomes compromised when you have individuals, you know, dependent upon race, that have weak bonds or don't have conventional connections to conventional systems. So, you know, as I kind of talk about, you know, in the paper and as we kind of, you know, get the history of kind of Black people in America in this country, we know that they have weaker ties to conventional systems than other Americans. And so we know that they have greater distrust in educational systems, may have more economic and related stress, or may have experienced significant changes in the labor market system. And so compared to other racial groups, they all have higher rates of offending because of these weak beliefs in educational systems. I'm sorry, conventional systems, which those conventional systems, because they have those weak beliefs in those conventional systems, it's damaging because those systems actually can promote positive legitimacy perceptions of the criminal justice system. Okay, so I think we've been sort of dancing around your paper a little bit. So <laughs> maybe it's time that we just kind of get straight Let's to dive it. on in there. So like I mentioned, this paper was authored by Juan. It's titled A Multiple Group cross Lag Analysis of Perceived Legitimacy, Perceived Opportunities, and Compliance with the Law. The paper won the American Society of Criminology's 2020 Gene Clark Student Paper Competition. It took second place. And in this paper, Juwan aims to explore the relationship between legitimacy, perceived opportunities measured through perceptions of educational and employment opportunities and delinquency, multiple waves of data from the pathways of this decision study, and multiple group structural equation models were used to analyze how perceptions of legitimacy, perceptions of conventional opportunities, and delinquency impact one another over time and across racial ethnic groups. The pathways to the system study includes data on serious adolescent, adolescent offenders as they transition from adolescence into early adulthood. Now, Juwan, was that a fair description of your paper? Did I miss anything? No, you got, you got all the nook, you got a nook and crannies using the good old pathways data that has serious adolescence and really just had this question about the role. We understand the legitimacy to compliance literature. Tyler has documented that. And so I was really curious to see how that differ by racial group. And also how does the perception of opportunities, you know, begin to affect those relationships between legitimacy and as well as criminal behavior. And, you know, it just occurred to me. So before we like truly dive in, I think, like I mentioned, we've talked about legitimacy in a couple of different episodes, but just sort of as like a quick reminder, is legitimacy sort of its own unique construct or is it part of like a larger theoretical construct? I know we have like procedural justice, legal orientations. Are they all one and the same or are there differences between them? Yeah, so like procedural justice has its own its own measure. And so it's, it gets really interesting because sometimes legitimacy, people measure things different ways in different articles, but sometimes legitimacy is wrapped in different procedural justice. But for this particular paper, I'm using the Pathways data has a 11 index item for legitimacy. And some of the items are really like, I feel people should support the police, like, you know, those type of questions. And so there's a 11 of those and had a really good, you know, internal consistency. So when I'm talking about legitimacy as far as this paper, it's really about trust in police, how people feel towards the police, their perceptions 
of legitimacy, how their treatment has been. All right. All right. So, so far we've touched on what legitimacy is. We, we just sort of quickly summarized it and how you measured it and how legitimacy connects to compliance with the law. We'd like to sort of continue setting up the framework of your paper right before we get into the meat and potatoes of your findings. So you mentioned in your paper how certain aggressive policing practices can have adverse consequences when it comes to positive opportunities. So the first question is, can you elaborate on some of the policing practices that can lead to these negative consequences? When you say aggressive policing practices, what exactly are we talking about? I think one example that's been talked about in the literature is sometimes the use of like stop and frisk. And so, you know, there was a lot of articles. And so you have kind of those aggressive policing practices where, you know, stop and frisk was supposed to, you know, be able to individuals, a pet stop, they come and, you know, they see crime, police can stop and pet you. But because of those kind of aggressive policing strategies, which is like more on the, I guess you would say instrumental crime side, because police are, you know, trying to see, but it actually kind of does more harm than good because if individuals don't have those, they create more opportunities to have a less positive experience just because in most of the stop and frisk data, it was disproportional to people of color. And the whole goal of stop and frisk was to really like, you know, get guns and like serious offenders. And it was like kind of regular everyday citizens that were kind of harassing the process and there was, I know in Philadelphia, I can't speak for other states, and I think it had some issues in New York too, but in Philadelphia, the likelihood of the police finding the gun was very low. And it was like, I don't know how many stops they did, but they didn't really find as many guns. So what you had was a policing tactic that kind of really created negative interactions with kind of everyday citizens and also were geared towards a particular group of people because it was disproportionately people of color who were caught up in the stop and frisk policies. And which is interesting because we can kind of see like something synonymous in another system is the educational system when we think about things like zero tolerance. And so one of my research interests comes in the nexus between education and crime. I love to like go to schools and study schools and often I do professional development in schools. And so I ask teachers when, you know, I'm talking about climate and culture and you want to talk about zero tolerance policies and we need zero tolerance. We know we need to be able to, uh, you know, have order and discipline in the school. And then I, you know, I asked them, I said, do you, like I, I said, is zero tolerance, like, you know, core to the fabric of like educational system? They're like, yes. Like, you know, like, like, you know, like it's a lot of people believe that uh, zero tolerance were birthed out of educational settings, but actually that term comes from criminal justice. It was like attorney Peter Nunez. They were over like, sea vessels that were importing and ex- importing and exporting drugs, you know, United States. And they said, we're going to have a zero tolerance, like for this, you know, for, for individuals that think they can like try to, you know, transport drugs, you know, in and out of the United States. And that language picked up to like random things like skateboarding. And one of the things that really caught fire is in the like, educational settings. And so a lot of educators, administrators are surprised because they don't even know that where the term originated from. And they're actually operating like a criminal justice entity when zero tolerance is not really essentially fabric of educational systems. And so that's creating. So when a youth has may have a a negative interaction with police and they go to school and they're kind of like, you know, getting harassed or, you know, getting, you know, picked on for minor things. And there's there's like zero tolerance policy. They may view it as not fair. It's like, well, I just kind of experienced the same thing over here in this setting. 
And now when I go here and I experience it in this setting, and then when I may go to my employer, I may experience some unfairness in another setting. And so it becomes to really become this, this perplexing cycle. And I think it goes to what Victor Rio says again about this control complex that like this omnipresence of these criminal justice-like negative experiences, which can be detrimental to perceptions of how people perceive things as legitimate. Right. And talking about an educational setting. So I've had this discussion with my wife because she works in schools. She's a school psychologist. And we've had this conversation around SROs. And would you, would you consider that sort of like an aggressive sort of policing policy, putting an SRO in, inside at a school? I think it depends. I mean, I'll say that because I think we've seen, I think the most egregious aspect, it was on YouTube, I think it went viral, the SRO and like, I think it was South Carolina or North Carolina when a girl, she was like sitting in a desk and mm-hmm. the SRO picked her up and slammed her because she didn't want to leave. And so I think interactions like that are, are definitely negative and definitely aggressive. Here in Philadelphia, Kevin Bethel, who actually was a high ranking officer in the Philadelphia Police Department, he retired and paired up with Drexel University with a Stonely Fellowship. And when he was a police officer, it was really interesting. When he would go to schools, he would get called and the SROs would be there. And like this kid, one day he brought pepper spray to school. I think he was like in kindergarten or first grade because he actually, and he sprayed it on his sandwich because he thought it was like pepper spray and not for eyes. And so he sprayed on his, and so he cleared the whole lunchroom out. So you can imagine a bunch of kindergartens and one-year-olds like, Bling, but that was a subject where because the school had a zero tolerance policy, they called for an immediate suspension, and I think removed from the school. And it was another one where it was a, he came to a call, it was a couple of kids, they were a little bit older, but she took her mom's taser and it was pink. And now this they were like a couple of kids got, they were using it on each other and they were tasing each other in school. But this goes to say that like, and also in Philadelphia, he was there when somebody bought scissors and they were longer than what they were supposed to be. And so he said for these really trivial, you know, things we shouldn't be sending kids to these traumatic experiences of like the criminal justice system. So he created an inverse reverse incentive. So when school resource officers were not kind of like pestering kids for small amount of offenses, and also they created a, a diversion program. So like some of those instances happened that they would get services and it would be no kind of law enforcement context. And so basically however many law contacts, I mean, referral contacts, the SRMA and the less, kind of arrest and minor things they arrested people for, they were rewarded for that. So it kind of reversed the incentive. So I, I think, you know, I say it depends. It depends on the incentive structure and also in relation with the school. But we know from what our eyes tells us and also from the research, Aaron Kupchick has detailed a lot about this, how, you know, schools are kind of operating, especially with SROs, with kind of this more punitive approach. Right. Yeah. I remember reading an article mainly, again, stemming from these conversations with my wife, because it's not really my area, but where they mentioned that schools that have SROs tend to ref- like rely on the SRO a little yeah. more than, mm-hmm. than schools that didn't have one, where they kind of maybe tried to, I think they, they called it, turned it into like a learning or a teaching experience yeah. instead of other schools with, schools with SROs would tend to refer to the SRO pretty often. So... And then, yeah, the, just the experiences can vary with the SRO. Okay, so we know that these experiences can have a negative impact on legitimacy or at least someone's perception of legitimacy. How then does this impact life outcomes like 
employment and education. Yeah, so that becomes, you know, really, really interesting. So when people kind of view police as less legitimate, like I said before, using Sarah Brainworks, they're less likely to kind of like, they're more likely, I would say, to avoid systems, especially systems that may put them in contact with law enforcement issues. So like, if you think about like in your case, for example, like you said, the, where there was more SROs, know, was creating more, you know, issues in those particular schools. And so you may have a youth who who has a negative experiences and they may avoid school now because they know that the SRO is there. So a normal, probably juvenile thing, maybe like a small fight or maybe some inappropriate language. There was a report came out, I think it was Youth for Change or the Advancement Project where uh, zero challenge policy were supposed to be used for serious things like for people who brought guns and violence, but felt like people were getting suspended and expelled for chewing gum, getting out their seat for a classroom. And how this kind of impacts life outcomes for crime really is that criminologists and criminological theory point to schools as kind of a key system for crime control. I mean, so we know that, you know, education is the birthright for especially for young people. However, you know that they're not, they don't receive a lot of adequate educational opportunities and that has a lower expectation when people don't you know go to college you know they don't graduate high school this affects crime in the in the long run i think scholars such as and i'm blanking on the name okay no lochner and moretti they find that opportunities provided in school significantly reduce the probability of incarceration and those impacts were found for murder, assault, and even kind of motor vehicle theft. So that's kind of one kind of really aspect. So basically what happens as far as legitimacy-wise, you have these individuals who may have low levels of legitimacy. That then in turn, for them to avoid other systems, which could actually promote positive forms of legitimacy. When you think of schools, when you think of work opportunities, when you think of maybe community centers where mentoring is happening. So they avoid those systems if they feel like they will come in contact with law enforcement. And then when they don't get that service, that resource from those places like school or recreation centers, we know that that is a direct link to not being able to to decrease crime. Right. Okay. So you kind of touched on a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about how opportunities like education and employment impact crime and criminal behavior? Yeah, that's really awesome. And so so basically, we know that educational and occupational opportunities can lower the probability that individuals engage in certain criminal activities. I know Moretti, in his piece in 2003, specifically found that educational opportunities can affect criminal behavior by increasing economic returns to legitimate work, increase the cost of committing crimes, and altering the decision-making process. And so these are some of the ways that opportunities can affect crime. And then also, we know that there's a big, big gap between youth who are 16 to 24. They call them opportunity youth. They're not really engaged in school and they're not doing anything to market field. And so when these youth are not involved in occupational opportunities, this leads to them engaging in more crime as well as it becomes harder to integrate into conventional activities and also the mainstream society. Right. Okay. So one more setup question and then we'll be good to go. All right. So... (laughs) Based on your framework, can you describe for our listeners the association or how the association between perceptions of legitimacy, perceptions of conventional opportunities, and delinquency should vary by race? Like, how does race come into play? 
as it relates to the findings or just as just so, in general? So like in your framework, just in general, how is it, or I guess your hypotheses or how you hypothesize that race would interact with legitimacy, conventional opportunities and delinquency? Okay, so yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think to, to answer that, I'll talk a little bit about the model. I use a group-based SEM model. It's a cross-lag panel model, which means that you six waves across password data. So we had legitimacy, opportunities, and delinquency operating all together. So in the overall model, without just using race, obviously we would expect that legitimacy would have a direct effect on crime. And we also, you know, would expect how opportunities would play that, that opportunities will also have an effect on delinquency as well. And that legitimacy should also affect those opportunities. And because the model, you can run it with race, you don't need to have like so strong hypothesis, but given the setup in the literature review in doing this test, how I kind of wrote the paper is believed that Black individuals, particularly Black Americans, would have lower levels of legitimacy which would affect their delinquency. And we would expect that opportunities may be able to decrease their delinquency as well. And so that's what, it, that's what the paper is really setting up, really is a test of like understanding how different le- legitimacy affects the three groups, which I use whites, blacks, and Hispanics, as well as those opportunities and those delinquency structures. And the findings became really you know, interesting in what, we, what, what I found about how those th- these, these things operate, specifically with this sample uh, from the pathways data i guess we we might as well get into it can you hit us with <laughs> with with your findings yeah sure so really like in the uh, nutshell what we found is that just overall legitimacy perceptions and opportunities and delinquency they all had significant kind of cross lag findings meaning that they all were impacting each other but i guess the really the juicy stuff really is when we kind of parse things out by race what we found is that for whites and Hispanics, that there was a, with the cross-lag modeling allows you to do is define direct effects and also indirect effects. And so there was a direct effect that legitimacy directly affected delinquency for whites and Hispanics. And that was not the case for Blacks. But what's also interesting is that there was this kind of direct cross-lag relationships with Black where opportunities decreased the amount of crime and also, and vice versa as well, where individuals who predicted more delinquency, their opportunities were limited. And that was not found for whites and Hispanics. And then for the indirect effects, we got to see how legitimacy was kind of operating. And so it's interesting that for whites and Hispanics, the more perceived opportunities increase to more perceptions of legitimacy, which also may decrease crime, where the process worked differently for Blacks, where as they seen uh, authorities as more legitimate, then that kind of, they perceive their opportunities to be more prevalent, which then kind of decreased crime. So two different processes operating for the two, the three groups, and also those direct effects and those indirect effects. And just for our listeners that might not be terribly well-versed in stats, can you tell us really quickly what an indirect and what a direct effect is? Yeah, so a direct effect is really like, kind of how one thing affects one another like it's no intermediate variable in between so we saw like legitimacy had a direct effect on crime which means that like as people's for whites and hispanics so as they view the police as more legitimate that directly decreased the amount of criminal behavior that they were involved in 
And the indirect effects really talks to that there's a process by which legitimacy plays out. So the indirect effect is like A leads to B, which leads to C, right? There's a more (laughs) drawn out process where for whites and Hispanics, that the more legitimacy plays out in this role, right? So the more opportunities that they perceive that are available to them, then increase how they saw police as more legitimate, which then affected their delinquency, which for Blacks, it was legitimacy. The more they perceive the police as legitimate, then they perceive their opportunities as more in their particular neighborhood context, which then had an effect on their delinquency. So delinquency is decreasing, but it's just two different process when we look at an indirect effect when we throw in legitimacy, but a direct effect is really like how legitimacy or opportunities are affecting crime. And we see those processes working differently depending upon which racial group one belongs to. Okay, and so one of the findings that you talked about was the indirect impact of increased legitimacy on increased perceived opportunities, decreasing delinquency among Blacks but not whites or Hispanics. Why do you think that was? I think that's really interesting. I think it talks to this idea of what opportunities people may see in their communities. We know that in Black communities, they tend to be more over-police, and they can kind of go to what I was talking about earlier, is that because of such, it may also have effects not only for those experiences, those direct experiences for police officers, but it bleeds over into different social outcomes in their lives. So that's why we may can speculate as to why opportunities had a direct effect on delinquency, and that was not the case for whites and Hispanics. And it's really interesting when we look at the indirect effects as like legitimacy as they perceive legal acts more legitimate, then it's like, oh, okay, I also can see other social or different various domains in my life being legitimacy. And that was related to them and being less involved in delinquency. In sort of towards the end of your paper in the discussion section, you highlight this term community justice. <laughs> uh, in reference to your finding that opportunities are important for legitimacy. Can you tell us more about what community justice is and how it ties into legitimacy and outcomes, life outcomes? Yeah, so, you know, Ty Clare, I love, love was a fan of his work since undergrad, and he talks about this in his, his book in 2007, but we know perceptions of opportunities and perceptions of legitimacy they don't occur independently of each other. So this kind of really suggests that the legitimacy of various systems have to be considered holistically as improving legitimacy in one context could improve perceptions in another and vice versa. And so opportunities are important for legitimacy consideration and really gets that to what Todd Claire talks about as community justice. So community justice is a, is a term that refers to kind of all aspects of crime prevention that give community members decision-making abilities and commitment to quality of life issues as kind of like an explicit stated goal. And, you know, Claire talks about like at the, the gist of it, so to speak, is to help make places where people work, live, and raise their families good places to do so, do these things. But what's really interesting is that community justice is not just focused on legitimacy or procedural justice just as a concept, but also places equal weighting or emphasis on opportunity structures, racial justice, and social and economic equality. And like kind of adopting 
what I contend in the paper, a community justice approach as it relates to opportunities and legitimacy perceptions could be particularly useful or beneficial because under the umbrella of community justice, police will not just be responsible for just managing crime, which is kind of the instrumental approach, but also to contributing to the quality of life in communities. And in such, when police kind of do this, they will kind of be rewarded for their efforts because the community will see them as more legitimate, perceive them as more legitimate. Right. So just, it's all intertwined, right? Yes. Like one will impact the other, which will then have like a reciprocating effect. And so it's not just an arrow pointing in one direction, right? Yeah. It really is a both, is a both. And I think that while a lot of research shows, like you asked me earlier about how come, you know, if police are, you know, improve upon their tactics for managing crime, why is that not, you know, reducing to lower crime? And I think, you know, queer really challenges us to think about the community's role in this part. And so we're not talking about police actions tied to community goals and what's happening in one's environment. I think what he kind of tells us that we're missing the mark and that there's bigger things at play here. Okay. And now to bring us home, (laughs) could you tell us a little bit about sort of what implications your paper has for research and also for policy? Yeah, I think that's really some really strong implications. Won't give you all of them for the sake of time. But I think the kind of really meat and potatoes in here that, you know, what the paper kind of has really shown me is that the interplay between legitimacy and opportunities, they matter. We they can be thinking of them as in a vacuum. And because we know that the process is working differently, especially how we saw opportunities had a direct effect for delinquency for Black youth, that the group probably most in need opportunities are African-American youth, which is really interesting because we know how that can have a direct effect on their delinquency. And when one of the other key implications to take away is that legitimacy and opportunities either had a direct or indirect impact depending upon race and ethnicity. And I think that's interesting to see the process working differently and something to I talked about earlier about Victor Rios' works talks about, which is about the youth control complex, especially for Black youth. They talk about, like, this one of my favorite quotes he says in the book that, like, like man, it's like every day, you know, teachers got to sweat me, you know, police got to check on me, mom's got to trip on me, and my peels got to stress on me. It's like a zookeeper watching us at all times. And so it's this idea of the police kind of having this omnipresence. And when people have these negative interactions, that it can affect these other domains of their life as as well. And I'm seeing kind of seeing their perceptions of legitimacy. Great. That sounds great, Joan. And yeah, it was a really interesting paper, not top to bottom. You know, it was a thought, it was a interesting framing. The methods were interesting and I thought the findings were also pretty interesting. So thank you. We're glad we were able to talk about it. No, Um, thank you so much for for reading. And I appreciate the opportunity to come and, and talk to you about the paper and the work. And it was really exciting paper for me. I was very nervous about even submitting it to the paper competition. Like, oh, you know, my little paper. But it was really birthed out of some conversations I was having. At the time, I was co-founding an organization called the Urban Youth Leadership Academy, which is a middle school program, mentoring program in the college of education. It kind of operates only one of its kind. They're a temple where we actually bring students as early as middle school 
and have them come onto the college and treat them college students with the whole goal of them becoming Temple University students. And this last year, we had a young woman who we knew since eighth grade, and she was in our system and stayed with us in high school. And she actually started Temple in the fall semester. So this is her fall and spring semester. And what's really interesting to me is they talk about this idea. They also talk about how the SROs at their schools, but they also talk about negative interactions at police. And Temple, I don't know if you've ever been to Philadelphia, it's kind of situated in North Philadelphia. So we have like residential homes around it. And also there's a middle school that actually sits in the middle of Temple's campus where we recruit our students from. And before we even devised of the Urban Leadership Academy program, and we were kind of really initially starting, the kids in the middle school walk through Temple's campus every day. They walk past things, but they never seen it as an opportunity or a place that could increase their social mobility or just their access into mainstream and conventional activities. And so you had individuals and they got in the program like, wow, this is the library. And like, I didn't know about college and like, wow, you can make that much money being a business major. But prior to them coming, you know, to our program, they walked past the campus every day and never saw it as an opportunity that can improve upon their particular life. And I think that goes to a lot of you talk about how they had negative experience, not only with police, but also in school. And so they never even thought of college or any other entity that could be like, in the school is not (laughs) in my cards because, you know, what I experienced, you know, in this context. So it really came full circles for me to think about that. And as I began to approach this paper and kind of really understanding the data and also given the recent killings of unarmed black men and you know in this time and I think it's particularly selling now with the George you know Floyd trial about how people are seeing the police and what are those implications or those consequences for everyday life right no yeah that's awesome that you're doing that it's really commendable (laughs) thank you and so oh man I kind of wish we had chose pick that but maybe we'll bring you on another time to talk about the the program that you're running out of tempo but we actually want to talk to you about another program that you're involved with. You are a busy, busy person, Juan. I try to keep myself busy. I try. But so, and this is a bit of a departure from, from your paper and, you know, legitimacy and crime. But we want to talk to you about your involvement with the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been involved with this since 2016, correct? Yes and no is an interesting story behind that. I've been involved. I became a Think Tank member in 2016, but I, my first... So I, I'll, let me just backtrack by saying this. So Temple was the first university to take students outside of the college classroom and take them to jails and prisons to have conversation with incarcerated individuals. It started in the 90s. And so it sounds like a cool idea now, but our founder, Lori Pompa, it was somewhat controversial that students were going to be coming out of their nice college classrooms and going into these, you know, scary prisons and jails. But Lori finally believed that if we we're going to get a deeper understanding of these issues as it relates to criminal justice, that we had to get proximate to these individuals and also see the individuals who go through the experience as the experts. And so when I was an undergrad, can't forget the year, I think it may be 2013, 2012, I took my first inside out class at a women's facility called Riverside Correctional Facility. And we were, the class was around women's issues and it completely changed my life. The inside out pedagogy, it's awesome. We sit in a circle, we only use first names, there's no hierarchy. And we explore, we have inside students and outside students and we explore a topic during the course of 15 weeks. 
So when I came to Temple, fast forward, I get accepted to the PhD program. I said, man, you know, that was a great, you know, that was a great experience. I really enjoyed that. I didn't know at the time how, you know, that we had our own center and, you know, me being a good researcher, I just looked it up and say, oh, this, this is a whole inside out center. So I go and I walk over the center and, you know, I introduce myself and say, you know, I really love this class when I was an undergrad. Is there any way I can copy papers, staple, staple papers? And they were like, no, we asked, we have this thing called the think tank. And so basically what happened was for people like myself, I guess, the classes were so dynamic, both for the inside students and the outside students, that they wanted to continue to meet outside of the just the 15 weeks. And so in 2016, I joined the Greater for Think Tank, which is now at SCI Phoenix. And so every Wednesday, a group of incarcerated men and professors, laymen, if you just sign up to be a part of Think Tank, and we would meet every Wednesday to hold workshops and do things out in the community. So we would invite DAs, we would invite judges, and we would have different conversation. Well, that was already a blast for me and I was so excited. But one of the things that the think tank does is they train instructors. So in order to teach in the prison or jail, you have to be a certified inside out instructor. So Lori asked me one day, said, you ever thought about teaching your own inside out class? And I was like, me? <laughs> Lowly me? <laughs> no. So I took the training to become a certified instructor for inside out to teach my own course. And so I took the training and that that was awesome. And I said, you know, pat myself on the back for making it out. And then she said, Would you, did you ever think about teaching your own section? So I actually taught Inside Out. And actually my class was the first class, I, I think, in Inside Out history that was not taught in a jail or a prison. I taught the first class that was actually in a community correctional facility or a halfway house. And so that was the first time that Inside Out had extended into the halfway house. And so we were exploring community issues. And it was really fascinating because this community correctional facility that I taught in, even though people had the ability, they weren't handcuffed, they were shackled, it was still like locked and secure. And so students were often confused as, you know, it's like, got this barbed wire, I see dogs, but people don't have handcuffs. And so it was a great class. And just recently over the summer, I'm just an inside out lifer. I actually became, went to a training, a train the trainer program. So to actually train other professors and other to teach their own inside out courses. And this summer, I actually will be doing my first training as a training instructor. So really excited about that. So I've been with Inside Out at all the stages now. And it's just been a great experience for me and for my, my research practice, for just my service to the community and just my thought process and all. Man, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like quite the journey. Can you sort of tell us pretty explicitly what exactly the Inside Out program is uh, or what, what is it? What is it trying to achieve? Yeah. So basically what it's trying to achieve is not your traditional criminal justice classroom. And let me just say Inside Out is an, inter- sorry, it's an international program. We have Inside Out courses in Mexico and UK, Australia. Inside Out is all over the world. And basically if you, they probably have somebody teaching Inside Out at your state and I could probably find out for you, but basically it provides the criminal justice student with real experience. And I don't know about you, but I took Inside Out in my senior year of college. And it wasn't until I took Inside Out that you know you can go your whole criminal justice undergraduate career without ever going to a courtroom, without ever going to a prison. And so it really gives the student, it puts them in the environment and they get to learn with people who are experiencing that system. Inside Out is really great because 
We don't have an agenda. We don't have a catch or a spin. We're not trying to convince people about a particular issue about as it relates to politics or the incarceral experience. It's this idea that the people who go through the system are actually the experts and not us. Because we, some of us may never know how it feels to have cold handcuffs on your wrist, to be separated from your family, to have to reintegrate back into society. And so we lose a little bit of that by just getting the secondary textbook knowledge. And so what Inside Out does is the ability to learn and hear from the horse's mouth. And it's not just one perspective. It's not just us learning from the men and women who may be in the inside, but also bringing an outside perspective to really get the both the inside and the outside experiences to really understand these really complex and nuanced issues. And I always taught in my inside out classes that a lot of these criminal justice issues, and we can go down and listen, name them. It's not a black or white thing. A lot of times there's a lot of gray area. And it's in that gray area. When we get proximate to the issue, then I bring my experience as a black male and somebody may bring their other experience as an incarcerated person where we begin to wrestle with those issues and really get to some heart of the matter there. So that's what Inside Inside Out is really doing. You can teach an Inside Out class. You can, as an instructor, as a professor, you can take an Inside Out class as a student. And even if you're just interested in these issues, you can sign up. Uh, You go to to our website, theinsideoutcenter.org, and on there you'll find the different trainings if Inside Out is being taught in your state. We have a whole center. So there, um, Eileen Ferrison, who who probably answer your call. She's awesome. She's amazing. Even if you want to go visit, Inside Out was great because people, you can go visit a jail or a prison and get the experiences. You don't have to be involved in Inside Out. And Inside Out is also just not limited to criminal justice courses. There's biology courses being taught, sociology courses being taught, poetry courses being taught. So Inside Out is a pedagogy, but the subject, it could be political science. It could be anything to do in that particular context. So I'm definitely an advocate. I'm definitely a fan. And I think everybody should get the opportunity to be able to learn from individuals who experience the system, I think, as it relates to our field. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds awesome. I'm going to have to go check it out. No worries, but I get you connected. I'll get you all connected. <laughs> yeah, and for our listeners, we'll put all the links and all the information in the episode description when it comes out. So you don't have to rewind and like, WW what? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Juwan. It was great having you and talking to you, not only about your paper, but the Inside Out program, which sounds fantastic. It sounds like something that's something people should experience. You know, I didn't get the chance to do Inside Out in undergrad or my master's, but we did get to visit jails, juvenile camps in Malibu. So, you know, I wasn't, wasn't part of the program, but I can say that those experiences can really stick with you. You know, if people can be part of something like this, I would also highly encourage it. But so, Juwan, before we close out, is there anything you'd like to plug, anything coming out that you want people to keep an eye out for? Lots, working on lots of different projects. Like I said before, the Urban Leadership Academy, which we think is going to be a game changer, you know, in the field. What is really doing, you read in my bio, I was a part of the Ronald McNair Scholars Program. It was for undergraduate students to get PhD studies. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to equip the next generation of leaders. I have my potential bias. I'm trying to make the next group of budding criminologists. And I think that we have to start that process 
very early, especially for students of colors, even though Urban Leadership Academy is open to all students, but to equip the next generation of young people because they're going to lead and they're going to guide us. Finishing a dissertation right now on juvenile lifers, men and women who are sentenced to life without parole as children in Pennsylvania. As you know, Pennsylvania has the most juvenile lifers in the world, over 500 and 300 come from my city in Philadelphia. And so I have been documenting their experience before prison, during prison, after prison. And there's been a lot of news release, uh, I think in the Washington Post, Joe Ligon, who was incarcerated close to Philadelphia. He's, He's from Philadelphia. He's about 82, three years old. He's done like over 60 years of incarceration. So the United States is the only nation in the world that actually sentenced children as young as 13, 14, they were all under 18, to life without parole in prison, or as we better know it, as death by incarceration. And so that will be coming out soon. So I would love to get people's thoughts on that and also just to be able to share these dynamic stories as these individuals who've been incarcerated for some 40, 50 years, they went in as teenagers, they came in as older adults, tried to re-enter into society for the first time. Yeah, that sounds that sounds heavy. We'll definitely keep an eye out for that stuff. And you know, whenever the work starts coming out, let us know and we'll be sure to post it so people can find it easily. Thank uh, you so much. And I want to say thank you for just inviting me on the podcast today. Please give Jim my regards and I don't take it for granted to have this opportunity just to share with you and your audience. It's been really a pleasure for me and just kind of doing the whole process of planning and it's so great to finally meet you and have the conversation. I know we were, pl- we, we were planning for months and we had to switch dates around. So it's really great to be here and have this conversation with you. Yeah, likewise. And I know we, we sort of met in passing in Atlanta yeah. a couple years ago. <laughs> yes, um, we did. Hopefully we can run into each other again in Chicago later this yes, year. Uh, I was assuming you, that you're going, but I don't know. Are, are you planning on going? Oh, after not having a conference for a year, I'm ready for my bad coffee. I want my conference bag. I want my pen. I just miss it so much. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, we can get all the vaccinations and enjoy it safely or social distancely. But I'm really excited. Wouldn't miss it for the world. And I'll be presenting some of the juvenile life or work at the conference. And I'm excited to come view your sessions of your presenting in Jen as well. And so hopefully we definitely can get together. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hopefully we're not presenting at the same time because that would be unfortunate. (laughs) But where can people find you? Email, Twitter, social media? Yeah, so email is great. Juwan, J-U-W-A-N dot Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T at temple.edu. Also on the Temple University graduate student website. Really not a big social media person. Uh, I do have LinkedIn, though, and I do check it regularly. But email is always better for me because I check it frantically every every second i see emails popping up now and it's like juan stop looking at the email so yeah please email me i love to have conversations with people are interested or have follow-up questions or clarity about anything that i shared today great thank you juan we really appreciate it thank you so much sir i really appreciate you as well the criminology academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts make sure to follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at the crim academy If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.